0: This message is brought to you by Alliance Bible Church, located in Mequon, Wisconsin. Our vision is to captivate generations with the satisfying gospel of Jesus Christ. For more information about Alliance Bible Church or other resources, please check out our website, myabc.church Go ahead and open up your Bibles. If you've got them to Luke 5, if you've got a Smart device with you. You can pull that up. Open up BibleGateway.com is a good place to go. Type in Luke 5. Follow along as we look at these verses together. You know, I'm a, I'm a pastor's kid. I've got uncles and cousins in the ministry. And uh, so my life growing up was just dominated by uh, church and, and ministry, getting involved willingly or unwillingly as a child. With stuff. And so uh, when church humor comes my way, I get a kick out of it because there's more truth to church humor than you may realize. One of you sent me a list of bulletin bloopers. Bulletin bloopers. And um, they're funny. At least they were for me. Uh, I want to share a couple of these with you. Bulletin bloopers. Here we go. The sermon this morning, Jesus walks on water. The sermon tonight, searching for Jesus. (laughs) For those of you who have children and don't know it, we have a nursery downstairs. (laughs) Ladies, don't forget the rummage sale. It's a chance to get rid of those things not worth keeping around the house. Don't forget your husbands. Please place your donation in the envelope along with the deceased person you want remembered. (laughs) Uh, Here's another one. The ladies of the church have cast off clothing of every kind. They may be seen in the basement Friday afternoon. (laughs) The low self-esteem support group will meet Thursday at 7 p.m. Please use the back door. (laughs) One more, that's enough. (laughs) Don't let worry kill you. Let the church help. I've read through those a lot. There's uh, You'd be surprised. Anyway, uh, at this point in Luke's gospel, as we've been working our way through it passage by passage, Jesus has personally called just four men to follow him. Peter, Andrew, James, and John. In today's story, Jesus adds a fifth. And when Peter, Andrew, James, and John realized who the fifth is, I wonder if they thought that was a blooper. Let me read it for you. Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him. And Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. the reader to move through the words and sentences sequentially to best understand the train of thought. Stories like this one often require the reader to take in the whole all at once. That is to see the first verse and the last verse and everything in between simultaneously in order to grasp the point of it all. That'll be important as we look at this passage. We have to look at the first verse, the last verse, and everything else in between all at once in order to understand what's going on. And as we do, we're going to notice three things. We're going to notice who Jesus came for, what he called for, and the befitting culmination of it. Who he came for, what he called for, and the befitting culmination of it. First, who he came for. Levi, Levi, Levi. Who is this Levi? Well, we're told he's a tax collector. Now, right there, we need to pause. The amount of secondary literature produced on Roman tax collectors is so voluminous, one wonders about the amount of free time some researchers may have. But anyway, you need to understand this if we're going to get the significance of what Jesus has done in this story in calling Levi to follow him. The Romans collected their tax revenue through a system called tax farming. The Roman Empire was divided into districts, and then they sold the right to collect taxes to the highest bidder. The buyer then had to hand over the assessed figure at the end of the year and could keep whatever he gathered above that amount. So if Ozaki County was the Roman Empire and I was the Roman government and you all are tax collectors, we would divide Ozaki County into districts. You all would bid on the tax revenue you thought you could bring in and the deal would go to the highest bidder. And then you would get to keep the dollar amount you raised above that agreed amount. You see where this is going, right? Makes you kind of glad we don't have that here. Boy, it is not difficult to imagine how this system invited extortion. The potential for abuse was further aided by the limited record keeping and limited means of communication that they had in the ancient world. So that made it difficult for people to verify when they were being exploited or appeal to it. Now, there were two categories of taxes. Fixed taxes left little room. For extortion, Those included the poll tax, which all men and women paid simply because they were alive. The ground tax, which required one-tenth of all grain, wine, and oil. And then the income tax, which was 1% of earnings. It was the secondary of taxes called duties and polls that allowed the tax collectors to rob others. The people paid separate taxes for using roads and for docking in harbors import and export duties, even sales tax on certain items. There was even a cart tax in which each wheel was taxed. So the whole system was a breeding ground for exploitation. A tax collector could stop anyone on the road, make him unpack his bundles and charge just about anything his larcenous heart desired. And if the traveler couldn't pay, the tax collector would offer to loan him money at an exorbitant rate. Such men were skilled extortionists. Secondary Jewish literature classified them as robbers. Not surprisingly, they often allied themselves with thugs and enforcers, kind of enforcers, the, the scum of Jewish society. So rare was, was, was honesty in this profession <laughs> that a Roman writer remarked in amazement that he once saw a monument to an honest tax collector. Rule of thumb, when a monument has been created in your honor, you're one of a kind. Now, what throws even more shade onto Levi's shady character is that he is Jewish. Luke, by identifying him as Levi, he would later become known as Matthew, the writer of Matthew's gospel. But by identifying as Levi is making this abundantly clear. He's Jewish. So he is a collaborator with the Romans. He is a white collar extortionist and he's stealing from his own people. We might say that Levi is a deeply morally compromised former church attender. He's not a secularist. He has a rich religious background. But he is deeply compromised. Jewish tax collectors were easily the most hated men in Hebrew society. In Luke chapter 18, Luke categorizes tax collectors with other folks called robbers, evildoers, and adulterers. Matthew groups tax collectors with prostitutes and with pagan Gentiles. That's Levi. Now, Luke describes Jesus observing him. You know, we kind of run through this really quickly. Um, The word that's used there describes more than just simply giving a passing glance in Levi's direction. Uh, Jesus paid careful and thoughtful attention to Levi. This is what convinces me. I think Jesus was a people watcher. If he was at the mall, he'd be in the food court sipping his orange Julius watching people. (laughs) He paid careful, thoughtful attention to him. He's watching him and it's through his own observation, not some, preconceived notion about tax collectors that guides his judgment about Levi. And so Jesus beckons him to follow him. This is who Jesus has come for. This is who Jesus has come for. Now, this is not the day that Levi became one of the 12 per se, but it is the day he became a follower of Jesus Christ, a Christian. Now, this brief but deeply poignant scene is given more detail when at the party, the Pharisees and teachers of the law questioned Peter, Andrew, James, and John saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus is the one who answers the question. And he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Now, Jesus's defense is very logical. It's very logical. We could elaborate on it. Do you blame a doctor for being around sick people? Do you blame a plumber for cleaning out a sewer? Do you blame a mechanic because he works on broken down vehicles or a mortician because he messes with corpses? If Jesus is a physician, where should he be? But among the terminally ill, this is who he came for, but who are the terminally ill? Who are the sinners he's talking about? Is Jesus saying Levi is a sinner, but the Pharisees are not? No. If you don't think you're sick, you won't seek out a doctor. I'm not going to obtain medicine for a disease I don't believe I have. The Pharisees and teachers of the law didn't believe they were sick. They weren't looking for a doctor. They weren't interested in the medicine that Jesus was offering. This is something we have already seen in Luke, a theme that runs throughout his work. A couple of quotes I gave, gave you a few weeks ago ought to be repeated. C.S. Lewis, reflecting on this, said, Christianity simply does not make sense until you have faced the sort of facts about our sinfulness I have been describing. Christianity tells people to repent and promises them forgiveness. It therefore has nothing, as far as I know, to say to people who do not know they have done anything to repent of and who do not feel they have any need of need of any forgiveness. It is after you have realized that there is a real moral law and a power behind the law and that you have broken that law and put yourself wrong with that power. It is after all this and not a moment sooner that Christianity begins to talk. Neil Shenvey put it this way. He said, until our sin becomes an unavoidable existential reality in our lives, we will see Christianity as, at best, a harmless social pastime. If you are a righteous person who has no sense of unrighteousness because you have your act together, Jesus has not come for you. But if you are acutely aware of your unrighteousness and your need for forgiveness and your need to repent, you are precisely the person Jesus has come for, regardless of your past. The problem is putting ourselves in the right category can be more difficult than we appreciate. Getting ourselves in the right group can be more difficult than we appreciate. Dale Ralph Davis was telling a story. He said, I was a lad of eight or 10 years old and went on a 300-mile trip with my parents to attend a Bible conference for several days. We stayed in a motel, obviously before the days of card keys. One had a real metal key to the room attached to an oblong piece of green plastic that had the motel name and address on it. You remember those? One morning as we were getting ourselves cleaned up and ready, my father confessed he could not find the room key. He had looked in all pants and jacket pockets everywhere possible in the room. No key. My mother made the wild suggestion that maybe he had left it in the outside lock when we had come in the night before. He knew that was absurd I can still recall his pacing across the room toward the door with his lower lips stuck defiantly out and muttering, oh, I wouldn't do that. That would be dumb. (laughs) With that, he opened the door and pulled the key out of the outside lock. (laughs) He simply couldn't conceive himself in the category of dumb. First century Pharisees and their contemporary descendants often find it unthinkable to see themselves in the sinner's category, which may mean that you have no need of Jesus because you can't see how desperate your condition is. You're sure you are among the healthy. If you are a righteous person who has no sense of your unrighteousness or your need for forgiveness because you have your act together, Jesus has not come for you. But if you are acutely aware of your unrighteousness and your need to repent, you are precisely the person Jesus has come for, regardless of your past. What Jesus does with Levi is so incredibly encouraging. Think about that with me. By calling Levi... With all his baggage, with with his track record, by calling Levi to follow him and dining with sinners and tax collectors, Jesus is showing us something about how he views people. He views people in terms of what God could make them into, rather than pigeonholing them into who they currently are. You might be able to relate to that. You might be able to relate to Levi. Levi. You acutely feel your unrighteousness. Well, let me assure you, that is a good thing. Because Jesus sees in you the potential of who he could make you into if you just put yourself in his life-transforming hands. He does not pigeonhole you into who you currently are. He sees in you the potential of what you could become if you turn your life over to him. That's who he came for. Second, what he called for. So this morally compromised former church attender, traitorous Jew, is the one Jesus calls. But what did Jesus call Levi to do? Once again, we need the whole picture, whole picture of the story to help us. In explaining his actions to the religious leaders, Jesus said this, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. What is Jesus doing here? He is explaining what took place with Levi. This is commentary on what has, what has transpired with Levi. So what has Levi done? Levi has repented. Jesus is saying, I didn't, come, I didn't come to call the healthy. I came to call the sick to repentance. He's offering commentary on what has just transpired with Levi. Repentance, though, can be an odd word for us. It's not necessarily one that comes up too often in in daily 21st century American vernacular. It's a very important word for Luke because he talks about it frequently. Remember, Luke wrote not just the gospel of Luke, but he wrote Acts as well. If you look at Luke and Acts together, you see this word repentance come up often. Again and again and again and again and again. What does it mean? It's, it's not one that we use too often. What does it mean? Let me give you a barrage of definitions and then I'll, I'll illustrate it for you. Very often it's connected to forgiveness of sins. It's basic meaning is to change one's mind. It's a shift in view, a turning in direction. It's the alteration of attitude that brings about a radical reorientation of life. It's an abandonment of former ways of thinking and living. We could say to repent means to orientate your life around Jesus rather than career, pleasure, money, prestige, romance, sexuality, or anything else. So Levi's response to Jesus depicts repentance. Luke tells us that after Jesus exhorted Levi to follow him, he got up, left everything and followed him. There's a lot going on in those few words. This was a costly decision for Levi. He didn't just put the clothes sign up on his tax booth only to come back the next day and resume business as usual. Making this decision marked a decisive break with his old life. He's walking away from his career, a lucrative career that is at odds with how a follower of Christ was to conduct himself in the world. So what we're seeing Levi in Levi is repentance. We're seeing Levi put Jesus first, following him as a priority. This is an important thing for us to make note of. You know, by calling for repentance, Jesus is telling us that not all beliefs or behaviors are compatible with following him. Not all beliefs and behaviors are compatible with following Jesus. Jesus is the one that instigates that by calling Levi, and not just calling him to stay as he is, but to call him into a new life. And repentance is such an important theme in the Bible. I've offered six different, different, different definitions of it. Rather than giving you six more, let me try to shed some light on this, give you some, some illustrative material. I want you to imagine. Imagine repentance as a man walking in one direction who suddenly realizes he is walking in the opposite direction from which he should be walking. So he stops, he turns around, and he begins walking in a new direction. It's a quick and simple process. He realizes, he stops, he turns. That's one way to think of repentance. It's one way that it happens. You could argue this is how it happened with Levi. The whole thing was very quick. But imagine someone is on a bicycle. Imagine someone's on a bicycle. She's going in the wrong direction. What has to happen? Well, and it's obvious, right? She, she stops. She turns around. She begins bicycling, bicycling in a new direction. It's a longer process than walking. She has to come to a stop. Depending on speed, that might take some time. But the turning also takes longer. And it takes longer to get up to full speed in a new direction. The process is the same for someone driving a car. But that process takes even longer than for the person on the bike. In fact, in some instances, it might require going somewhat out of your way before you get back on the right track. The process is the same for someone in a speedboat. You have to slow down, enter the turn, come back. But the time and distance required to do this is so much longer than what, it was, what was required for the person who was walking. Now imagine a man is piloting a super tanker out in the ocean. It may take miles to slow down. Slow down enough to begin to turn the ship. And the turn itself is immense, taking quite a distance off his intended course. And then it takes a tremendous amount of time to get back up to full speed in a new direction. Now apply the images to repentance. Some people repent like a walker stops, turns, and starts heading in a new direction. Some people repent like a super tanker. They may realize they're heading in the wrong direction, but for numerous reasons, they're slow to stop and slow to get going in a new direction. underlying the different ways God works repentance in someone is the unavoidable and common theme change. When Jesus comes for you, he doesn't just come to hang out with you. He doesn't come to affirm the condition of your life as it is. He comes to call you to something And first and foremost is to see a decisive break from your old life and to reorientate your life around Jesus. Jesus is after change, a new direction, a new identity, a new focal point in life, a new energizing source. The word repent in the original language is related to our word metamorphosis, I don't have a ton of memories from my days in elementary school, but I do remember my kindergarten class and our pet caterpillar that we nurtured until it made that dramatic transformation into a beautiful monarch butterfly. While it was attached to that twig in chrysalis form, we had no idea what was going on inside. We didn't have the advantage of the technology available today to figure out these sorts of things. Today, we have what's called the micro-CT scan. National Geographic published an entire article about the use of this technology in studying uh, uh, caterpillar to butterfly transformation. And their findings are remarkable. They discovered a number of of things that transpire within the chrysalis that mysterious period of time between caterpillar and butterfly it was once thought that the caterpillar would dissolve into a soup <laughs> that is not what happens instead the the insect's makeover is a the insect's makeover is a mix of old ways of of being and thinking combined with brand new ways of being and thinking. It's, it's a mix of destruction and construction. Certain cells die and body parts atrophy. Meanwhile, other cells that have been there in place since birth rapidly expand. And then this adult monarch butterfly emerges. And this is the quote from the article, completely remodeled, capable of flight and possessing a completely rewired brain. It's helpful. I think these two pictures are wonderfully illustrative of what Jesus calls sinners like you and me too, and what transpires in us. He calls us to repent. He calls for a radical reorientation of our lives around him. He calls us to change the way we think. He calls us to change our approach to life. This doesn't happen at exactly the same rate in each one of us. But there is, where there is genuine repentance, there will be genuine transformation. There will be change. There will be new ways of thinking and speaking and doing. And when it happens, the befitting culmination of it is a party. Levi, who apparently did not leave behind his wealth, uses his assets to throw a party in Jesus's honor and invite his tax collector friends to meet him. (laughs) Levi puts his financial resources towards an event that would honor Jesus and draw attention of others to him. And Luke invites his lost friends to attend and participate in the festivities. I've seen this often throughout my walk with Jesus. It is often the newly converted, the newly converted in their fresh excitement, who are most adept at gathering a crowd in order to convey to them the significance of Jesus. But there's a more central point I want to draw your attention to for Luke. Repentance is an occasion for celebration just in this gospel alone. Luke records six feasts in conjunction with repentance. Six feasts in conjunction with repentance. He's getting across to us very clearly that repentance is an occasion for celebration. In Luke 15, twice in Luke 15, Jesus says there is much rejoicing over just one sinner who repents. Coming to know and follow Jesus is a great reason to party. JC Riley, we went so far as to say this. He said, coming to know Jesus is a far more important event than being married. What did you put into your wedding celebration? Compare that to what did you put into your conversion celebration? More important than being married or coming of age or being made a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul. It is the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is a passage from death to life. It is being made a king and priest forevermore. It is being provided for both in time and eternity. It is adoption into the noblest and richest of all families, the family of God. Did you know that heaven is described as a great banquet? An unimaginable feast. The one that Luke threw in honor of the Savior who rescued him is both a reminder and a foretaste of the banquet that lies in the future for those who have repented. Coming to know and follow Jesus is a great reason to party. I'm going to invite the worship team out because we're going to end this message. We're going to end this series, part one of this series on a note of celebration. But one more illustration of this. One more illustration of this. Look up here. The gospel writers were less concerned about recording history sequentially than we are. Chronological history writing is more of a modern-day construct. In the ancient world, they weren't so concerned about that. And yet, we're wired, how? To try to put together events in sequential order. That rubs us the wrong way when we're trying to get the most out of our Bible reading. We're missing the point, They were much more concerned about organizing their stuff along theological and thematic thematic areas and categories. And so the right question to ask is not what order did this take place in? The right question to ask is, why does this gospel writer put this story here? That's the question to ask. So John, who writes the fourth gospel, the first miracle he records of Jesus, (laughs) is turning the water into wine. The very first miracle that John records is Jesus turning water into wine. Why? Because they ran out at a wedding celebration. And that was terrible. These went on for days, right? These went on for days. They've notified him of the the travesty. Now, does he say, well, it's just a party. Get over it. I mean, end it early and let's go home. No. 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 Jesus says, let's keep this party rolling. Let's keep this party rolling. Jesus is not a stick in the mud. He's not a stick in the mud. Especially when it comes to your salvation, he is pro party. Revelation, the final book of the Bible, which tells us how things are going to end, tells us Christians are destined for a party of all parties, a bash to eclipse them all, a celebration on a magnitude never before experienced. If Jesus has called you and you have responded in repentance and faith, you have already experienced a glorious day that should be accompanied by celebration. Amen?